Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Although there is a saying that hardware is hard, it can still be attractive for venture capital investors. Damon Bonser of British Design Fund has lots of experience in this area and talks about the challenges, how he gets companies through them, and of course, the importance of design to building a good business. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode and apologies for a couple of sound glitches. So today we are joined by Damon Bonser, who is CEO at British Design Fund. Welcome to the podcast, Damon. Thank you very much, Brian. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you briefly tell us how you became involved in venture capital? Absolutely. So um, I'll explain first very roughly what the fund does, which will then explain how I ended up uh, setting this particular one up. So the British Design Fund, in a nutshell, exclusively invests in early stage UK businesses that have technologies which require engaging with manufacturing some way so we are a collection of the operators here with manufacturing experience both from entrepreneurial big corporates all that side of things um, but basically hardware's in our blood let's say that's so so that's kind of what in, in a nutshell what the bdf does so how i got involved with it all my background has always been manufacturing before before um, we came up with the idea for the BDF, um, I'd, I'd had my own manufacturing and design businesses, uh, exited brand, came back to the UK. Um, most of my, my experience was out in the Far East. Came back to the UK and was quite shocked. You know, we're going back now probably six years or so. And was quite shocked to see the lack of, uh, a couple of things, the lack of investor support for early stage hardware businesses. So a lot of investors, as I'm sure is not a surprise to the audience, uh, lots of investors get very nervous about hardware generally. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, when you combine that with early stage, which is already already quite a, 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 a bit of a roller coaster for a lot of investors, you know, it's a risky it's a risky stage, whatever sector or technology or whatever business you're putting money into. But when you add on hardware, lots and lots of investors get really, really uh, very concerned. It's uh-huh. out of the comfort zone. So that was something we spotted. And then I think the second thing that ran alongside that was that we saw some of those investors that were getting involved with early stage hardware in the UK really didn't fully grasp what it takes to get a product and a manufacturing engineering business off the ground. So you had this, you know, it was either a case of you you couldn't find the investors, which is bad news, or you could find some, but they had completely unrealistic realistic expectations and, and didn't have relevant experience many times. Um, so then that became a kind of fractured, you know, quite a difficult relationship between founder and investor. So that's so we saw the the problem at the design council where I was volunteering a bit of my time to help a cohort of uh, hardware startups to you know give them some advice. And we were talking to them about market entry strategy, you know, compliance, getting your product tooled up, you know, all the, the usual bits that we of advice that we'd give to an early stage hardware company. Um, but they kept coming back to us saying, you know, this is all great. It's all very helpful, but we can't find any investors to talk to. So it's almost the advice. The advice is, is fantastic, but we can't fund, fund our businesses. So we're not going anywhere. And that was kind of where the penny dropped. And that's where a few of us got together and said, look, this isn't, this isn't good. You know, the UK has got this great heritage of engineering, of design. Why is it to talk to these startups as investors? And that's kind of where it all came together. So, you know, we, we were very much 
sort of classic design thinking problem and user was at the core of it all. We didn't necessarily know what the solution would be. We didn't know actually the best way of setting this up would be to run a series of SEIs, EIS funds. That kind of came further down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's how we got into it. Okay. So you mentioned about hardware, and I'm sure a lot of people know the issues, but why are investors so nervous about hardware? A few things, but this is, you know, I, I have not conducted uh, uh, my own research into it, but what I can read from, from having done this now for a few years, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lack of a, a hardware startup community very often, so that they're, they're harder to come by. If you think of the places where if, if you are you know, a pure SaaS business or a you know, prop tech or something like that, like if, you're a, if it's a pure digital space you're operating as a startup, you can probably find homes of similar companies and uh, ecosystems which have investors that have made money in that space and it's kind of and transacting with, with founders in that space and, and, and there are active investors with hardware is a little bit different there are communities but there's just less of them mm-hmm. you know so i'm in today i'm calling you from somerset house there is a community here called uh, makerversity but it's you know it's kind of one of the only ones in london you know when i think of how many there would be how much support there would be out there for um software it's, it's just it's just different so finding the community initially is, is one so i think investors struggle to engage with those founders and and and, less, and often don't have the experience from hardware manufacturing just by the very nature of um, all of the tech startups we've seen and, and over the last few years versus hardware startups supported in the UK. Um, so that's one. And I think there's a there is a concern about how uh, you know how different the funding requirements are for hardware companies. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we, we all know the 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 phrase "hardware is hard." You know, we don't we don't subscribe to that. It's different. Every business, every startup is hard, um, but hardware is a little bit different. And and I think the the perception for many investors is they they visualise these warehouses full of physical product. Um, <laughs> they get really, which which we 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 get nightmares about as well. We don't; those are not the kind of businesses necessarily <laughs> to get involved. With. We like to keep them lean. But the, but the point is, you know, with our understanding, we we know the ways to operate as a lean hardware business. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you absolutely do not want your use of funds going into filling a warehouse. It's just converting your cash into speculative stock. That's a mm-hmm. that's a very risky game. That's not one that we enjoy playing. But we look at it different. But there are differences. But it's you know we may move on to that slightly later in the interview. But there are there are there are absolute differences for sure. But they are not insurmountable differences. And there's there's clever ways of going about it that really do bring that 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 kind of cash burn down to reality. Yeah. Well, let's follow that now because I I I think that the whole issue about capital requirements and some of that I think is the concern about things like length of cycles. With software, you could go. You got a problem next day. You can go and you fix the bug and fix. You know, you get a hardware problem. You got to send it. You know, electronics. You got to send it off. You got to change the chip design. You know, blah blah. blah. The, the, the 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 iteration cycle is just longer, and and getting feedback can take a while. Is that really a problem, or why is that less of a problem than people should, um, than than people should think? No, so it's an absolute. It is. It is reality. Um, if you get it wrong with hardware, it, you get it really wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas with software, you can, you know, you can very simplistically, but you can put a patch out, you can change your code, you can update it and release it. So it, it absolutely is. There is a, that is one of the fundamental differences. Now, how we how we manage and get comfortable with that that difference in risk is that in those first couple of years, as the as the business is going through its final stages of development with its technology, getting compliant. You know, setting up with, with with a factory and starting to move into production, fulfilling um, orders with clients. 
we 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 deploy quite a lot of resource into those businesses aside from the cash because we recognize that if we are not involved quite heavily with those those companies we choose to back in those early you know early couple of years it can go catastrophically wrong i mean there's no mm-hmm. there is no avoiding that reality you know we i, I don't think any fund would promote a prey and spray strategy uh, <laughs> deploying your <laughs> funds but but if if one were to do that it would it would really go very uh, badly for you i believe if you're putting it all into hardware because they you do need to be there you need to make sure they don't tumble into some of those fire pits on their way to launching because if they do get it wrong it's going to be so difficult for them to raise further funding you know that we need to get them trading we need to get them to a really solid track um, um, point of traction when they've got recurring revenues we've got over that risk that many investors see around you know finalizing the development and technology and launching it so yeah so that is so so, so the simple answer is, and that's that i think is the piece you know when, when we talk about hardware is hard for us we get it. Hardware's in our blood. We know how to, you know, the, the businesses, we're very comfortable how we get their technologies through and, and the expertise we put into them. Um, but we have a very, you know, one of our unique points of difference would be the level of support they get. So they get mentors, they get engineering experts, they get board advisors who have built up manufacturing businesses, have come, either come from industry or built up from scratch. They get so much support from us. And a lot of that is really concentrated in those first couple of years to see them through to that next funding round um, where they start to scale up the, and, and build up those recurring revenues but they've 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 resolved some of the bugs they've had that feedback you know and, and to a point around how do you you know the, the feedback it all takes a bit longer it does but this is you know this is why you, you you put paid you put paid trials out with clients that are not final generation product you know it's it's not even generation one it's a you know this is a part of that that part of that journey to full launch you do that minimum vial product kind of issue yeah, and you and and you and you're not opening up tooling. You know, using stuff like 3D printing, you're you're rapidly getting stuff out to your users. Um, hopefully, generating a little, generating a little bit of income. Um, but you're getting it out to your users and you're getting the feedback in, without having to sink the costs in. Now it's interesting. So how we look at them. So once they do start to sink cash in and and you know, and start really putting some of those assets on the balance sheet, I think that's where the tables turn slightly in terms of the risk profile because mm-hmm. those are very real barriers to entry. It's 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 difficult to appear from nowhere and compete with a hardware company. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got pat- you've got patents. Yeah. You know, all of our businesses uh, must have patents. You've got typically some element of tooling. There's some production capability that's been set up that's you know that comes with a price tag, but it comes with a, a lead time as well. You know, these things aren't quick to get right. Um, you've you've got the compliance piece. You know, there's quite a few hurdles they jump over, which we are you know we support them on and help them with as they go through to market. But once they are there, suddenly some of those. Uh, concerns around the hardware i think become actually part of the armor and part of their resilience as they as they look to then scale mm-hmm. yeah okay there's a lot there to dig into <laughs> so i'm going to come back to two or three of those points i think so you mentioned about fire pits about that they can fall into the early stages what are one or two examples of those fire pits that you sort of see people either avoiding or 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 heaven forbid falling into yeah, so, so there's a few. So kind of a, if, if I combine kind of behaviours and uh, as well as physical, like you know, actual actions that are taken that result in some uh, tumbling into the fire pit. So, um, speed to market is a big one, and that's one of our core focus. So, core areas we focus on. So any of the companies we work with, myself, the committee, the team, we must be comfortable with the funding round that we're participating in and often leading. 
along with our resource going into those businesses, that they have a have a good chance of trading within 12 months. Yeah, that's that's the bar we set for ourselves. Obviously, we can't guarantee that, but that's uh-huh. what we set ourselves as a target. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so that pace to market is a is is in some respects a bit of a fire pit. So if you know some companies will wish to get things, you know, almost to perfection, they want to stay in the workshop and keep iterating uh-huh. the design and getting yeah. it absolutely perfect as they can whereas we come in and support them support them and, and advise and nudge along and say look you know we're not going to get perfection on the first one like we talked about earlier let's get some of those iterative trials out there let's get minimum product out minimum viable product out into some paid trials there's a there's a whole series of steps you can take before you actually need to really sink into a sinking money into a, a tool and start start mass production so so we, we and that's a big one so we we really do sit with them and say, look, you know, they may have some assumptions about what their route to market looks like that might involve, I don't know, a Kickstarter campaign. Nothing wrong with a Kickstarter campaign. You know, they're great, great sort of ways to market your business. But some of these businesses will build up too many of these steps that they think a hardware business must, a hardware startup must follow. You know, they've read the book. They've got to do all they, of know, them, they, they think. Yeah, and they've got, and also they've got. They feel like sometimes they have to do them sequentially as opposed to running many of these things in parallel. So mm-hmm. we look at it and say, look at it. It's so important to get that. You know, your big, big, the big turning point in this business is getting that product out to market, getting the, you know, seeing those recurring revenues coming in. That is such a turning point, and it's such a boost to the company's valuation. We are absolutely sort of fixated on that. So that's that's a big fire pit, and and it can come in shapes and sizes. You know, some some people obviously around the, you know, needing to get design perfect so some of it might be is perfectionism a big issue because um we we try we try and avoid it that part of our selection process is we're looking for founders that don't have those character traits but you say you know you can't none of this this process is perfect so you sometimes do discover there's a there often it's a lack of experience you know many of these founders haven't done it before so they think that's the best way of doing it they've got to get it absolutely right and you say it's you know it's it's not about getting it perfect. There's different. You don't need to necessarily sell. You know, maybe your your year one business model isn't about selling. You know, I'm thinking of a particular business in mind, like 60 grand or 80 grand pieces of kit to uh, industry. Maybe it's around leasing that stuff in, so your team's working alongside it, so it can deal with the hiccups that will inevitably come with mm-hmm. an early generation of products. So there's lots of those sort of things. And then, and then a really obvious kind of fire pit, but there's a whole series of missteps you would take to end up at this point. But, you know, you really do not want um, a company rushing to lay down tooling. So this is the, you know, if, let's, let's imagine a business has got some element of casting or, you know, injection mm-hmm. molding or something like that. We don't want them laying out vast sums of money into their tooling too early on in the process because, you know that is that's a that's a big part of their fundraise will be going into that and if after that event they then then they then realize there's a customer misalignment there's a they haven't quite understood um the need they you know that that can can sort of uh, be the sort of death of that company uh-huh. so we really are careful with that so on one hand we're we're a constant sort of um, force behind the team to keep them focused on revenue but at the same time there's a cautious part of the team which is saying, right, okay, these are the steps we need to find. Let's get this thing compliant. That isn't going to be as easy as you think it is, or very often. Um, and then, when is the right time to tool this up, and how far can we push that big cost back so that we're really comfortable? We've got this close, a good a market fit as we can find. Yeah, I mean that sounds an interesting tension because, as, as you say, on your hand, these these are like two hands pulling it in almost different directions. Because one, you're saying, okay. Let's go ahead. Let's you know, push as fast as you can to get revenue, but you don't want to actually 
set yourself up to produce the product fully until you're really sure of, of product market fit, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's why we've got, we've got different, there's different resources that get um, deployed into these businesses at different times. So there is a time for customer discovery, um, stripping away assumptions that have been made up until the point that we've got involved with those businesses. There's a, there's a right time for that, but there's also, there's a right pace that that work should happen at. And within, you know, a couple of months of following our investment, a lot of that work should now be done. And we should then start to move into, right, what's your critical path to get this through to customers? But it's good. But the, but the, the teams get very different um, mentors. Uh, the board observers are pretty pretty consistent, but the, but the mentoring and the, and the programs we devise for them, they, they, they change quite a bit over the first sort of 12 to 18 months because, you know, you, you do, you, they go through these cycles, you know, they'll, they'll move from that you know, the, the, the stripping back of assumptions, reassessing customer need and all those things into a slightly more of the engineering side of things. So we're moving into compliance, into then, you know, moving into warming up the market. I mean, the companies will all have some, we require them to all have some um, element of uh, demand from market, not necessarily revenues, but, you know, there should be some indications of interest. There's something there that we validated through DD. So we know there's, there's, there's an opportunity here, but, you know, that's very different to when you actually turn on the button and, and really go for trade for trading um so there's a whole market warm-up phase that kicks in but no, it is it is uh, but it's with any business you know hardware software whatever you know, property it's kind of there, there's all these you know as a founder a successful founder you have to be able to look at the whole thing and say you know there's quite a few plates i'm spinning in there's quite a few disciplines i'm having to um to kind of skill up in and one of them is you know how do i commercially tackle each of these challenges because I can't put 100% of my resource into R&D and make the perfect product because my market will disappear and someone will sneak in when I'm not looking. I can't put all of my effort into just sales generation and marketing because I'm not going to be product ready. You know, but that's, that's, that's the skill of a good founder is they should be, they should be, you know, be able to spin those, those, those uh, multiple plates. Yeah, and it seems to me this is a big challenge because that's one of, what you mentioned about the difficulty of implementing manufacturing and, and sort of the tooling up stage. And it seems to me... As an external person, you've probably got someone who's a great ideas person, or you know, I think we've got this stereotypical idea of a man in a garage or a man in a shed somewhere, which is probably not quite true anymore. But someone who's really good at generating ideas, but but manufacturing is very much an operational thing, and they may not come in with those skills. Um, and then sales later on is, is again very different, and presumably part of that is. You, you've got these ideas people or people with these um and and you've got to sort of get them to bring the right people in okay say you don't know about manufacturing you've got to find someone who does yeah look ideally ideally you're looking for a founding team of more than one person that brings a combination of those skills is the perfect scenario it mm -hmm. doesn't obviously always happen mm -hmm. but it is great when you see you know, maybe the, the kind of ideas person, let's say it's great when they've come from industry, that's a really nice tick in the box. They live and breathe the problem. They've mm -hmm. seen it. They're frustrated with it. This is why they've launched it. Great. And if alongside that, they have, uh, you know, the equivalent of a, a kind of CTO and engineering lead, that that's perfect. But there's always there's always a skills gap. So it's, it's very rare for us to back a business 
uh, then look at the team and, and see that kind of all bases are covered. There, there's always a gap. There's, there's there's always stuff that they don't know. There's always something that some, someone missing from that team. And the thing is, they're still they're still in bootstrap mode, right? We're talking about seed mm-hmm. levels of funding. Typically, the rounds are kind of four five hundred grand, um, four five hundred thousand rounds. They still are in bootstrap mode. They still got to be very careful. They can't get the dream team from day one. So, so that's part of that is, is that, look, our mentoring programs um, designed to resolve that. But your your point about the kind of you know what's heading down that sort of typical profile of a founder. So, it, you know, I'd say one thing that runs true across all of the the teams will be that they will have market insights. That's one thing we do not want to bring have to bring to the team. They should know the market they're going after. They should have insight and expertise and potential and, and ideally access into that market. That's that's a big one for us. Now, if they're you know, and I'm thinking of a recent investment we've did we, we've done, uh, the founder is not an engineer he's not uh, technical we'd say he's from a marketing background but he knows the market but he but and, it, and it's a single founder business so you know that is always uh, a red flag is probably too, it's a it's a point that we uh, delve into further mm-hmm. as we're going through our TD when it's single founders because we know it's uh, slightly riskier uh, and in, in that case he had already started to bring on a design team so he's got two engineer uh, uh, an engineer and, a, and a industrial designer already onboarded as part of his team so he's clearly happy to to delegate he recognizes he does not have the skill but he mm-hmm. knows the market he's seen the opportunity um he's already warming up clients he knows how to get this thing through to market um but he, you know when we um, pulled together the mentoring program for that particular case it was very much you know you, you need one of our mentors on board that can really put their kind of you know arm around your shoulder and walk you through uh, and help help upskill you to allow you to manage uh, designers and engineers when you're not from a design engineering background. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it's uh, would I say it's fairly typical. It's, it's it's a real mix. I mean, you know, there are a good you know if I think of the the latest fund now, so it's our fifth fund being deployed at the moment, and um, there's a lot of kind of, you know a lot of them are engineering led, but then they, they might have come you know they they're often you know engineering backgrounds they've gone into industry and they've built up commercial skill sets and that's where they've seen the opportunities in coming through but um it really it is a mixture but i mean i think the key thing is as long as they understand that market they know how to communicate it they know who the customer base is they know you know all of those really important insights as long as we're getting access to that and the team's capable and able to deliver we can we're quite happy to fill those 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 gaps you know or help them help them a recruit gap for those gaps and also help them as founders upskill them to a certain degree and say right this is how you need to run a, a serious engineering operation okay and you've mentioned compliance a couple of times now everyone in finance has an idea about compliance of some yeah. sense but i suspect <laughs> manufacturing is something a little bit different yeah yeah so i mean most of our businesses they have to go through some kind of compliance stage which is you know getting your product certified so you're legally allowed to sell it in a market and you know is that basic safety issues or yeah some some more than you know so, so you know some stuff there's different levels of certification for different products obviously you've got things like medical device that can take years we steer away from those ones because they conflict with our desire to get products trading in 12 months but there are st- there are you know they're they're rightfully onerous a lot of these certification processes because the products are um fundamentally important that they work you know if you're making a bike helmet for instance it's important that that thing no matter what the design is it's important it protects your head when you when you come flying off your bike uh-huh. um so yeah so and i think what we 
what we often do with um, the teams in the early days is we'll talk to them about being realistic around expectations because they may, if they've not gone through this process before, a process of certification, depending on the, the, the sector they're selling into. I mean, some things are just less burdensome. There are some sectors where it's just a bit quicker to get through. It's not as heavily regulated, but there are some, you know, some, you know, like PPE safety product stuff, you know, obviously it's, um, you know, it's, it's quite, um, it's quite serious. Uh, certification needs to happen and what we try and get them to think about is let's do a let's look at your forecast let's actually work with you and factor in that there's maybe a couple of more iterations than you think you might need to do because they might be being a little bit optimistic about how fast they get through that process they might mm-hmm. think they do it they ace it, ace it on the second attempt and we'd say you know our experience in this space that you know you need to really think about you know if you've got enough cash sat here if this takes four times and is six months delayed there is a risk that could happen it's very real we we see it and so yeah so yeah so so compliance uh, compliance when we talk about it is um is from a product certification point of view and it's probably another area that you know we you know our investors take comfort that we're involved in these mm-hmm. businesses because left to their own devices they could uh, you know they could they're not going to you know they, they would have they have to work with testing houses like you know you, you go to an organization to get your product compliant and you have to pay them but they could stumble into those relationships fairly naively and either overpay overspect the testing or not really understand what data they should be getting back from the testing house so they can effectively reiterate the design and make sure they hit it on the nail on the second or third time yeah, and, and you know, and I think that's another thing. You know, when people think of hardware, they do think of all these stages that are just—they're just so alien to many investors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned earlier was patents and intellectual property, which is, in in some sense, I think one of the, almost the attractions of hardware. In that, there's a, there's, there's a, seems to be a stronger potential for sort of patents and ITP protection than say a lot of software things. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty. That's a big, big point of difference. I mean, obviously, there's a big difference of opinion between the US and, and sort of other countries on, on what you can protect from a software side of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, all of our companies will have, will be either have um, registered IP or be on their way to registering IP. Mm-hmm. Like we can see the pathway through the technology they're developing that this should there should be a pattern that can be um, applied here. It, I mean, it is yeah. That's it's. I'd say that's one of the one of the benefits of a, of a hardware business. Uh, you've got the whole question of you know, and, and it's an asset. So if that business does uh, fail, that that is something that could potentially be acquired. So the balance sheet has some value to it. Um, you know, it's a you know, it's something that can be uh, uh, traded off. But the question on the question top of IP that we do get, it, you, it's not unusual for us to have founders say, well, you know. You have this requirement for IP, but how are we supposed to defend that in the first, you know, couple of years? Because you know, it's... well, that's, that seems <laughs> to be the, 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 the potential challenge and risk is that I, I, I know one or two people have been involved in startups. They found the big partner. The big partner effectively took some of the IP, and they didn't have the resources to to fight it. Yeah, and you in the first couple of years, you, you will as a startup, hardware, software, anywhere, right? You're going to really struggle to to take on a serious case against the big boys it is often a case of the you know whoever's got the biggest lawyer will win in those first couple of years so we you know, we go into it very and, and that is part of the reason why we have this emphasis on speed to market kind of speed to market coupled with the ip mean that you're hitting certain traction points you're actually building up revenues and uh-huh. starting to reinvest cash into your business and continuing to innovate you know what makes a business attractive to us is the is the funnel of ip that developing 
developing not just this one piece of IP that happens to be registered when we invest. It's you know what's our ability to continually um, innovate and create new IP. But we sort of say to them, as soon as we can get you to market, you then start to get other things creep in from a, from a protection point of view. You're, obviously, your brand starts to play a, a small part, but it starts to be worth something. Your trademark, even you know, majority of our businesses are B two B, but it's still important that, that that protection around your brand is important because that is you know, that again is a is a is a for software and hardware, obviously. Um, that's what something that sits on the balance sheet. But um, but with the IP piece, it's really about thinking in three or four years' time. If you know, you have to think in terms of if this goes successfully. So if this business does what we think it can do in three or four years' time, actually they will be in a position to defend it. If they get a, um, if they get some infringement in year three or four, they could probably do a funding round. If they've hit, the, if they've got the revenues that we want them to have, they probably could do a funding round to actually have a have a, a stab at defending it. But ideally, what you're looking for is just a constant innovation. You know, that's that's what someone will acquire a business for is that the ability of that business to continually innovate solutions for the market that they know so much about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And once you sort of got to that stage where you sort of established the manufacturing, is there some point where actually you do need a big funding round to get that warehouse that you said you don't like? Um, or yeah. you know, what? How, how, what's the sort of, I, I don't want to call it the end game, the middle game, if you like, once, once you've got beyond that? Does, that. does that require a lot of money? So, again, depends the kind of business you're backing. So we don't typically do that many consumer businesses. You know, we look at our businesses and, and see that there are different funding stages. So there's the seed stage that we go at, in at. There's the, the kind of valley of death get them you know between seed and series eight and then there's a series eight onwards and typically that so you know so we've with our seed funds our focus is getting them get them trading find them the next um, source of funding and that funding some of it will be for stock some of it will be for larger premises but but we try and implement you know as, as lean a manufacturing strategy as possible so all of those kind of technologies can really take a lot of that burden off so that you're, you're, that you're taking around the cash and going to people and marketing and uh, as well as some of that um, hardware piece. But you do, you know, these companies do need some some assets on the ground. They need stuff. They do need stuff typically in warehouses. Now, they don't need to be their own warehouses. More often than not, we're talking about contract relationships where they're working with probably people that we've, we know very well. Um, uh, so, so that they're not, they're not typically... Uh, they're not typically building at their own warehouse with their own manufacturing facilities. They're mm-hmm. normally contracting that out to someone else. But um, but yeah, and then as they go to sort of Series A, again we like to see, you know, the Series A's and the Series B's is it is it, it's it's all growth money. Some of you know some of that pie chart of use of funds will invariably have you know alongside R and D people, marketing, and the usual bits and bobs. It will have it will have stock and it will have um, you know uh, prototyping and all those kind of things quite unique to hardware. But, but what we try and help them with is thinking about the, that, that blended sales channel. So we, we don't really have so many companies a business that just that its chosen route to market um, it, you know, meant that it did have to sit on certain amounts of speculative stock. Then we'd say, well, well, what other channels can we open that can be a bit more you know, made to order so that you're not fully reliant upon that? What else can we marry up with that channel? That takes a bit of that cash burden off your business and allows you to generate some, you know, some sort of deposit income. Maybe you know you're sort of you know taking larger quantity orders for certain territories alongside your speculative holding that you have maybe in one or two uh, territories across the world. So, it's, but each business is very unique. They have their own their own sort of um, cash cycles that are unique to them. 
but our, you know, what we try and pick out when we're seeing those companies come through and apply to us is, you know, have they got, you know, we, we, I mean, we're not mandated on it, but we probably would shy away from one that was, you know, that their route to market really did involve sitting on speculative levels of stock. It's a slightly different beast to one that we enjoyed playing with. Um, but if, the, if, if, if we did find one that was absolutely purpose-led, could command its place in the market had that model we'd, we'd pr- before we moved ahead with it we'd probably look at like are there some options to either license to have some licensed partners which is you know very cash positive or or can we can we set up some distribution agreements overseas for these guys that again are slightly more cash positive and try and blend it because it, it, it's uh you, you've got to be careful with that stuff you know you've got to be careful how much cash you, you convert into stock and sell mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I, I guess when it comes to that, there's, there is some alternative financing available that's sort of non-equity, but for an early stage company, that's not always the easiest to get. Yeah, very difficult. You know, it's almost when you when you can get it, you probably don't need it. <laughs> Often the way, you know, sadly, um, that's yeah. the way of banks. They always want to lend money to people who don't need to borrow. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's why people like us exist. Yes, yes. <laughs> so. One thing I was really keen to talk to you about was design, because obviously it's in the title of your fund, and in some sense, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times in passing, and I guess we're sort of rewinding the investment process a little bit here. But in essence, what do you mean by design? Because I think people have this idea of Apple, this is probably a stereotypical one, where Apple has been a design-led company in some sense, and been very successful with it. It's obviously not the only approach, but it suggests that mm-hmm. there is the role of design in startups is not trivial or not unimportant. Yeah. So yeah, look, everyone has their own view of design, right? So there's the aesthetic piece, um, which plays an important role for certain sectors. How how we you know what we investigate and challenge companies on as they come through our process uh, with with regards to design is more and more around the user-centered design space Mm -hmm. um which in all fairness it is it's it's an approach that any business whatever stage and whatever sector you're in if you if you've not taken a user-centered design approach to your to your business you you, you're probably going to run into trouble you're at higher risk of running into trouble at some point but we really take it to heart and it happens to be, you know, it happens that we apply it into um, the sort of hardware space. So we're talking about really, you know, a, a sort of an explicit understanding of what the user need is, what the environment is. You know, it's it's classic. It is it's classic business strategy stuff. But it's but it's you know for, for us we look at all of the business through that lens of do they understand user centered design? Have they put that user at the center of their business and built everything out from that? Uh, and I suppose in layman's terms, an example of the worst scenario, you know, the, 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 the absolute antithesis of that would be someone that's come up with a clever technology. You know, I mean, it's very stereotypical to say someone's come up with a clever app, clever bit of technology, uh, does something, you know, kind of clever, but they just have no market. They're, they're trying to find then a customer for that solution. That's that's kind of the, the opposite of, of what of what we go through. But yeah, so for, for British design funds, it's predominantly user-centered design. We don't really, we're not talking aesthetics or anything like that. Most of our, again, most of our businesses are B2B. But if we have a consumer business, you know, aesthetics starts to play a bigger part. Um, we have expertise we can de- deploy in there. But right at the start, we, we would be challenging them and saying, you know, how well do you know your market? How well do you know your users? How are they solving this problem currently? 
and, and why is it important that your technology gets through to market or your solution goes to market? What, and you know, and, and and we ask this, we ask ourselves this question, which is the sort of inverse of it. We say, how how important is it if they don't get through to market? So that's one thing. So for our purpose-led piece, which is very very important to our thesis, um, we ask ourselves, what will happen if we don't wrap this business? So if this doesn't get through to market, is the world any worse off? And if we sit there and have that honest debate internally and say, well, actually, do you know what? It's we could probably survive. The world can probably continue without this. Then, you know, it doesn't have a huge impact if they launch or not. Then we take a step back and say, okay, it's not. That's not for us. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting because the UK, I think, probably has a reputation as being very good at creating ideas and products, and less good at turning these into real businesses. Now, you mentioned at the very start about issues about funding and structure, but also I do wonder if this sort of design versus user-centred design sort of thing is part of that in terms of lots of people with lots of ideas that don't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily translate to business because people just, yes, that's very nice, but will people pay for that? Yeah, look, we have a little, well, you used the analogy earlier, uh, <clears throat> which would have set the tone for some of the audience. So, like someone, uh, you know, fumbling around in the shed, uh, gluing things together with the, you know, <laughs> I mean, that is, that is just, you know, that's your classic, uh, that's your classic inventor. I mean, they probably don't have the skill set of what we need to see in a founder, but we, so we don't, we don't see too many what we call shed dwellers um, come through the doors. But um, we are a, na- we are a nation of, of innovators and inventors, and it, 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 it has has run run in our blood you know we sort of forget that i think sometimes nowadays but it's still it, I, we look at the uk it's, it's still a good place for, for that you know that that really early stage so you know and there's certain things that the government do get right i think around this encouraging innovation around hardware and a lot you know the role that innovate uk plays i mean that does that does de-risk it significantly for players like us so what role does innovate uk play then so, so i'd say almost all of our, I mean, at some point, I'm pretty comfortable to say at some point, all of our companies will access non-diluting grant money because they have, because they are innovating a technology that's protected by patent typically and, and, and plays an important role in society. And it's got some element of impact purpose to it. Um, and that does de-risk it. You know, it takes away that, and the, you know, the, 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 the cash burden that comes with uncertainty around taking a, a hardware technology to market is de-risked by, you know, through, you know, if, we, if we're in a three, four hundred grand round, and there's three, four hundred thousand coming in from Innovate, that, you know, that that does considerably change the risk profile of that business. So I think the UK gets that bit right. I think also, and this is, I mean, you know, so, so we so we interact a lot with Innovate, um, but there's also, you know, there's local grants and there's very, you know, there's very specialised grant bodies. So you know, some of our companies will access things like um, grants through the Advanced Proportion Centre. You know, so there's these there's these centres of excellence and these catapults across the UK. I think the government's done a good job. You can all, you know you can always criticise and say they can do better, but mm-hmm. you know they, I think they've done quite well there. And I think when you couple that as well with some of the the tax incentives around R and D and innovation, you know that's another nice one. You know, you know we're not expecting to be kind of generating in the first year or two, but they can offset some of that R&D spending, get some of that back as cash in, uh, in hand. Um, and then there's also things like EIS, SEIS, which, you know, it's, 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 you add that on top of it and you go, actually, these businesses, you know, the UK is considerably de- de-risking these, for, for investors, de-risking these innovative, rich startups. Now, uh, you know, I'd say that we're not so great, as you've indicated, we're not so great at maybe keeping them, but we're good at kind of, we're good at, we're good at seeding them 
and let's see how we can do it for the next sort of 10, 20 years and see if we can try and keep a few of them here. <laughs> drifted, drifted off to the US as they often do. Uh, it's just, it's inevitable, the size tickets and the, the appetite out there is just hard to compete with when you get to sort of the Series A's and B's. So do you think that the environment for sort of hardware startups and design, good design has changed over time in terms of, in the UK, in terms of are we more supportive than we used to be? Are we less supportive? Is 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 the overall environment you think improving or getting worse? Or so uh, I can't probably I can't probably comment too much. I think, you know, from an investment side of things, you know, we've been going sort of four year four years really with the with the funds. So I've probably not been in it long enough to see a change there. But what I have seen is the the ability and the appetite within the UK to to assemble manufacture product is changing now that is a that's more than just a covid hangover there's a there's a few things i think covid really flagged for a lot of um, hardware companies that you cannot have all your eggs in one basket i mean if you cannot access a, a territory you know if you cannot access your factory floor and your you know technology business with complicated you know engineering solutions that you really need to get in and see how it's going and that's that's a that's game over for you if that's the situation so i think a lot of people had a wake-up call um, through covid and is that things uh, like but, um, what we're seeing now and is that things like China is no longer just a default? You just go find a factory in China. You've got yeah. to think more yeah, yeah. constructively about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you, like the, you know, and, and yes, absolutely. We're talking about sort of China and Southeast Asia, places that were, were locking down heavily over COVID. That's one that really flagged. I think that really, really was a was a wake up call. You can't have all your eggs in one basket. And then what we've seen following that is then the political unrest in certain territories is, you know, so go back to kind of classic business strategy stuff that whole pet the, the pest analysis bit that everyone you know you do your strength you do your SWOT analysis everyone liked one of those the pest or you know you always re- remember those from the university days you sort of breeze through the pest and you wonder what the p was for like is it really that important that p now that political bit <clears throat> that's super important you know that's you know there's, there's a security play now you know so we see quite a few businesses come through that you know their, their whole business model is around security over resource you know, so it's all changing for sure. So we are seeing a lot of our, I mean, it's not unusual for our companies to base a good um, piece of their production here in the UK. If you think about it at the early stage, it's often the first time they've gone through this process and they're probably selling to the domestic market initially um, or maybe into Europe, you know, but it's it makes sense that they base the, the really critical part of production or assembly here, you know, more often than not, that is the case. It would be—it's very unusual for us to find a company that doesn't do that. Now, supply chains are dotted all over the world, and there's certain—you just—you know, you have to make certain things in certain countries. But um, we see a lot of that. But what what what, what I've been quite surprised is that what we've seen in in the UK is the UK is definitely scaling up its ability to offer the sort of production services that you would you would have assumed 10 years ago you just had to do in southern china so we're talking kind of pr- printed circuit board stuff um, electronic components there are really good players that can operate at quite low moq like quite low quantities here in the uk and, and still be competitive on price it, that is a that is a, that is a, an absolute um change in the market that we've seen you know in my, my background previous to the fund was largely based out in the far east and china and you just would always go to, to places like Shenzhen for certain certain components. That now is changing, and the supply chains, is, you know, supply chains, remain kind of global. But that expertise 
putting together PCBs and you know sorting the components, assembling it here. High, you know some of that higher engineering stuff. That uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of places now in the UK that can competitively offer that, and, and a lot of it is about designing your product in a smart way so that you you're not you're not requiring a huge amount of human intervention. You're not there's not a high assembly cost. There's not people all over your product. You try and design it. You really really look at that design for for, for manufacture stage try and integrate um, automated production where you can and just try and take as many of the people out of that process as possible and you and you end up then with you know with, with a competitive alternative here in the uk to to manufacture your product at least a good a good percentage of it your, your critical part yeah well, that's interesting because it sounds like that's a big change in trend at least in trend i don't know what in terms of absolute quantity but in terms of a sort of a re-onshoring um of, of manufacturing yeah it's, yeah yeah it's it's a it's a real thing it's happening it can only be good for us but right, it can only be for the uk uh only can be a good thing for, for the design fund it's you know it's uh yeah no, it's it's, a, it's it's definitely happening excellent that's that sounds like good news what i'd like to move now is move on to our favorite questions so we'll throw these at you and we'll get your thoughts so what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made so a couple of weeks ago, we did a uh, wearable technology. So this this is playing slightly into the medical device space, but it's um, low regulatory uh, burden. So this is a, let's call it a smart sock that can detect early signs of distress, typically within uh, dementia patients, uh, and can al- and alert carers to come in mm-hmm. and uh, de-escalate the situation before they come out of control. So currently at the moment, there's wearable solutions. The problem is a lot of the patients are, are very aware that they're wearing them. They get frustrated and they pull them off. Whereas this this solution is integrated into the sock. It has sensors all across the thing. It can take a read on, on things like sweat levels predominantly to indicate and, and it combines that with then ai so the chap one of the one of the, the co-founders um is a, a a unique blend of sort of data scientist and uh, and mech engineer and yeah so it's that combination of learning the patterns through the ai piece that can detect what what's a signature of a, of a patient and getting to that point so so that the carer can come in and do something as simple as sit down make a cup of tea and it doesn't then escalate to the point that three nurses need to rush in and calm things down Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's interesting because you say there's an AI element. You know, when we think about hardware, I guess there's a software side to all of it. In that you, a lot of these things will have some sort of operating system or something along those lines as well. Yeah, it's a, I'm trying, yeah. There's, I don't think there's probably a hard business in our portfolio that doesn't have um, an element of software engineering going on there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So in the classic market triumvirate of market product and management, we know they're all important, but which to you is the most important? <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I mean, I'm sure everyone says the same thing to that question. You cannot, you cannot take any of those in isolation. But if there was some strange scenario you could uh, create where I had to pick one in its absolute form, I suppose I'd, I, if you had to pick one, it's got to be the people. It's got to be mm-hmm. the management because you can, you can pivot that. You know, a product technology can become outdated and can the market can move, a market can change, but the only thing that can really respond to that are people. So picking the right team that can that, that can read the customer, read where the market's going, can has the, has the ability to pivot and be resilient, and then produce new technologies and new products for new markets would be. If you had to pick one in isolation, I think I'd go with the management. 
Okay. That's interesting because I was wondering, I was actually wondering how you'd answer that given the sense you're almost like a product led <laughs> by, yeah. by, by name. Tell us about the time you failed and what you learned from it. So, um, yeah, okay. So, sort of within, look, in our game, so we're, we're a seed investor, we, we forecast into our uh, performance numbers the fact that uh, a good percentage of our businesses will fail. Now, we've, we've currently got a very low failure rate. Um, so we're heading up towards 30 companies now. We've only had one that, that has failed. And if I look back at that business, um, I think the, the learning from that was, that, well, as we just talked then about emphasis on uh, people. So I think, you know, that was a business from um, the first fund. And there was, I would say, we we looked too much at the product and not enough at the um, the people. The market, market was kind of covered. It was an interesting market, but the... The founder, it was a solo founder, and it didn't quite have enough of the the skill set required to see that through, and so kind of suffered from sort of founder burnout and all those kind of things. And so the learning from that is really, you know, part of you know part of that is why we now red flag single founder businesses. We really, as we went to fund two, three, four, five onwards, the importance of understanding that management team. And we really, really recognised that as we went in. Even as soon as Fund 2, it, it became very apparent that our focus on the technology and the patterns from Fund 1 wasn't enough in its own. You know, you really, really had to understand what to the best that you can. There's still, as we all know, there's still an element where once the ca- cash has gone in and you really start working with the team, you then really get to know them. But there are things you can look out for. There are, there are character traits. There's things you can pick up through DD and the selection process that, you know, that can... That sometimes result in just too many red flags, and you say, "Look, this isn't this. This doesn't feel right." It's. Uh, I think we're going to have to step back from this until the team sort of grows and changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the EIS industry in which we work is great in many ways, but it's far from perfect. What would you like to change about it? <laughs> yeah, look, it works well for us. I mean, it, you know, like I said before, that combined with innovate and all the the kind of tax R and D credit stuff really incentivizes people to set up companies that we can possibly invest into so i, I like it i think it kind of works that things like you know i feel sorry for the guys working hmrc i know that you know the numbers are cut there's not many of them but that that delay that sometimes comes that we had you know for the for the bdf we have to get certain things back from hmrc for these companies to make sure that they qualify and that, that can slow things down mm-hmm. slightly and also you know issuing out certificates the things that our investors like to have you know those those investors that have applied for sort of SEICIS um relief the speed with which we can get certificates and some of the speed with which we get advanced assurances from hmrc can become a little bit frustrating but look it's uh, we we just factor it into the, the speed with which we can deploy but uh, yeah it'd be nice to nice to throw a bit bit of uh, the government to put maybe a bit of cash back into hmrc mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I, I, I think there's a need for that. Not that it's anybody's favourite organisation, really, but... Well, we like them when they're giving us tax certificates. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so not all that. So, as listeners know, I'm an avid reader and always out for suggestions. Any books out there you like and would recommend? For a year or two? Okay, I mean, one I do recommend fairly frequently is... Um, by uh, Matthew Said, Rebel Ideas. I don't know mm-hmm. that one. Um, yeah, I mean, for those that haven't, it's uh, it is about you know not falling into the trap of basically surrounding you yourself and your team with like-minded people that effectively just their mindsets just stack up on top of each other. So don't get lots of um, you know 
well, it's, it's, it's sort of written in the, in, from the US side of things. They don't get loads of Ivy League kind of graduates that all have the same basically, you know, worldview and uh, and skill set. Because yeah, fair enough. That's a, you know, you're raising the bar in terms of the applicants you get coming in and, and sending their CVs in. But they all think the same. So mix it all up, you know, and, and that is, and it's a book a little bit before its time, I suppose, because it's kind of talking about really diversity, but in diversity of the mind uh-huh. <laughs> in all its ways, you know, just, you know, you don't need, you know, you don't need, and it's the same for us, you know, when I look at kind of a, the makeup of our investment committees, there's some solid, solid engineers in there, there's some fantastic people from industry, some leaders of industry there mixed in with entrepreneurs, and they're, we're all, we all think in a different way, and if we can come to an agreement on something, there's a good chance we're covering a lot of the bases. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I have actually read that one, and I definitely think it's it's a it's a worthwhile read for, mm. for exactly the reasons you expose. Um, and it's very thoughtful about it as well. It's not just a case of mm. okay. I, I, I think sometimes the message about why people want diversity gets a bit lost. Yeah, and uh, we is I don't know what you'd call the equivalent of greenwashing from a diversity point of view but there's a, there must be a word for it but yeah this is this takes it in its purest form and says it this is not necessarily about gender um ethnicity or anything it's 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 just about just get diverse thinking in you know from however you identify just even you know you know that that kind of if you're mapping out the skills on an axis make sure you've got the dots all over the place not all stacked in the top right corner yeah yeah <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, I think I think it's hard because we all do like to surround ourselves with people in some sense who are like us. So, what do you wish you knew when you start in venture capital that you know now? Uh, it's probably like we talked about a little bit before. It's just, I mean, we learned the lesson very quick, but that importance of you know that that founder team makeup, you know, really, really, you know, this, the, the businesses will not succeed on technology alone. You know, a, te- a, a great technology in a really attractive market with the team that can't deliver, just won't, won't deliver. <laughs> you know, it will, that's the it will always fail, fail at that that point. You know, the point of weakness will be that team that's got to deliver on it all. And we learned that we learned that very very quickly and incorporated it into our sort of selection process. So I'd say, yeah, that would that would, yeah that would have saved us a lot of uh, you know a lot of hard work in the early years because because mm-hmm. the reality is how we address it is when we find those teams that have those shortcomings uh, it falls onto us to solve it you know we don't like i said we've only had one failure so we we kind of roll up our sleeves and get stuck in but it's a big drain on resource from our side of things when we when we get those 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 teams come through that need need a lot of work um yeah but look, that's what we signed up for yeah but yeah we're getting better at it <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad to hear it so if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at british design fund where should they go Go to our website, britishdesignfund.co.uk, or they can drop me an email, damon at britishdesignfund.co.uk. Uh, we are always, we, we generally are always in deployment mode. So if you have an interesting early stage hardware business, you think you might have some IP around it, addressing a very important need, a very important purpose behind it, please do contact us. And we're always, you know, we always we always have funds open now. So we're moving to an evergreen structure. We, we kind of have closed funds up to date, but we're shifting to an evergreen so we can constantly sort of take in funds from investors as they get interested. Excellent. Well, we'll post links to those in the show notes. So I'd like to thank you very much for coming on today, Damon. I've really enjoyed our chat and catching up with you and and finding out a bit more about what you're doing. Thanks a lot, Brian. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Damon. As well as learning more about the state of hardware investing, it's good to hear there are positive signs for UK manufacturing. 
As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harbinandco.com forward slash podcast. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. If you liked what you hear, please give the review with lots of stars on your favorite podcast app. We can be contacted at inquiries at Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time. <laughs>